Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Lonely Mountain Mystics podcast, and I have to say I am pretty excited to share this one with you. For years, Peter Rollins has been a major influence in our lives, and his ability to turn an idea on its head has continually inspired us to greater and greater curiosity. Devin and Will recently got the chance to talk with Peter about his work, and they really only scratched the surface. We've talked about some of his ideas on the show before, and I think this episode is a great introduction to what he's doing. All of us on the podcast are doing Peter's study called Atheism for Lent. We talk a bit about it in the episode, and if you would like to join, you can head over to peterrollins.com and sign up. We're really excited to be participating and plan to share our experience with you as we go through it. One quick note on the episode, the audio does drop out for a word here and there, and we are sorry for that, uh, but hopefully it doesn't take away from the experience. I think the last thing before we get started is all the normal stuff. Uh, We're on Twitter, check out the website, check out the Patreon if you want to support the work we do, all of that good stuff. Oh, and don't forget to send us feedback. We really do love hearing from you. All right, here we go. My name is Devin, and uh, I'm here with Will and uh, Peter Rollins, and so we are talking about atheism for Lent and learning a little bit more about that, uh, and also a lot of the really great work that uh, Peter does. Peter, but just very briefly, <laughs> what do you do? How did you get to be where you are? Wow, oh, very briefly. <laughs> <laughs> Your life, Your life story, five, yes. five words or less, go. <laughs> five words or less. Well, very quickly, I'm from Belfast, Northern Ireland. I live in Los Angeles. Uh, trained in philosophy and and uh, theology and psychoanalysis and you know it's difficult but basically exploring what it means to live before you die mm-hmm. Ex- exploring what it means to um, embrace a type of life in which we're freed from this frenetic pursuit of something that will make us whole fear money whatever it is drugs and to be able to embrace um, the challenges and the difficulties of life. And I do connect that with, uh, you know, theological and philosophical ideas. That's awesome. How does that sound? That's awesome. <laughs> that sounds That's great. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds yeah. great. So tell me a little bit about where atheism for Lent came from. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's jump straight in. That's good. Um, so funnily enough, the idea came to me, uh, it's over 20 years ago now, so I'm 46. Uh, I started it in my and I'd actually read a book by uh, quite a conservative Christian philosopher called Merrill Westphal, who wrote a book called Suspicion and Faith. And the book had the subtitle Atheism for Lent. And in the book, uh, yeah, it was a great subtitle. As soon as I saw it, that's interesting, you know. And he basically argued that some of the greatest critiques of religion are actually critiques that are within religion itself. It's critiques against uh, idolatry, critiques against superstition, uh, critiques against using God as a means of uh, uh, propping up yourself or attacking your enemies or just sleeping well at night. And so in this book, as again, he was a conservative uh, uh, Christian philosopher, but he was advocating that over Lent, we read these great critiques of religion as a type of purifying fire Mm. that can help us get more to the heart of what uh, theology is aiming at. 
Uh, and so the very first atheism for Lent I did was actually just a, a, a course on that book. And then I developed it from that and then began to kind of create a program that was kind of custom made where every day of Lent people would get a piece of art or a reading or something to listen to that acted as a type of uh, purifying fire. Have you heard of Merle, Merle Westfall at all, by the way? Do you know his work? I, I have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, so I wrote a paper... Um, I wrote a paper my senior year, or not my senior year, but one of the last classes that I was in seminary on Nietzsche as a corrective to Christian theism. Um, uh, we're seeing right. him as like a prophetic, anti-Christian, kind of re like refining voice, and I I had to borrow part of that book for it. Oh, very good. Yes, he's written very well on Nietzsche. There's actually a book as well by a guy called Bruce Benson called Pious Nietzsche, and um, uh, he he again is uh, working within the kind of Christian field. And it's a book that basically shows that Nietzsche's kind of irreverence is actually, he's a very prophetic character, very religious character. He's God intoxicated. He was such a, a fervent uh, religious uh, zealot in his youth. And actually something of that stayed with him his entire life. Uh, so even his proclamations of the death of God, you have something of Luther in that, you know, the death of God on the cross, Christ. So Nietzsche is a fascinating character uh, because although he's often seen as this kind of anti-religious figure, uh, there's something profoundly uh, religious about him. Yeah, my uh, my only experience with Nietzsche was in his critiques of, uh, I want to say like the Old Testament with Abraham. And so, oh, yes. um, oddly enough, I am one of the, uh, I'm the only one who didn't go to seminary. <laughs> out of the group yeah. and so that's why you only survived you 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 lucky escape yeah. <laughs> sure i guess uh they yeah. didn't really want me uh <laughs> um but yeah so um so as you practiced atheism for lent and started refining it um what what's kind of your goal because growing up evangelical even though you know my favorite uh i i joke around and say that my favorite theologians are usually atheists um, and I really enjoy listening to the work of uh, science and, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson um, and uh, The Pale Blue Dot is just a phenomenal book by Carl Sagan. So I love a lot of that type of um, thinking. But when I get to the word atheism for Lent, that word in itself really it really is challenging for me because of my experience in the evangelical church. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, first of all, then, yeah, uh, atheism for Lent, um, I call it a decentering practice. Uh, and I've developed a, a series of these decentering practices, which we can talk about or not later on. But one of them, anyway, is, is atheism for Lent. And I call them decentering practices because it's obviously a little bit of a play on these very popular centering practices that people do now more in spiritual circles. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to center yourself. But actually, in terms of the history of the world and the history of human development, uh, some of the greatest advances in uh, the sciences and some of the greatest advantage, uh, advances in technology come when we are decentered, whenever we are thrown off course, when we are challenged and we have to rethink things. And so the decentering practices are designed to, in a productive way, kind of question us, 
decenter us and help us look at things from a slightly different angle. So, you know, another of the decentering practices is called the Last Supper, where a group of 12 people invite a guest who likely has different beliefs to them. So if it's a group of Christians, um, maybe from a certain tradition, they might invite a humanist. There, You might invite someone from a different religious background. And they talk about what they believe and why they believe it over dinner. And there's conversation. And then if we don't like what they say, it's their last supper. Hence, it's called the last <laughs> supper. Um, and uh, we put them kind of in the seat of Christ symbolically. Go, like, You know what we did to him, right? Might do it to you too. Uh, and the idea is that doing one of those events is just a fun night. But if you do 12 of those in a year, say once a month, it can get you to start rethinking yourself. And you start to look at yourself in a different light. You start to interrogate your own beliefs. And even if you don't change any of your beliefs, the very fact that you're reflecting on them and looking at them can be a very uh, kind of powerful and beneficial experience. Because very briefly, the, the most challenging thing about someone who thinks something different from ourselves is not that they are other that they're weird and different and strange. But it's that if we look at ourselves through their eyes, we start to see that perhaps we are weird and strange and monstrous. So at first I encountered another community who has a very different way of, say, raising their children. And I go, they're, they're really weird. But then I hang around with them for a while and maybe I glimpse myself through their eyes and go, actually, maybe the way I raise kids is very bizarre and weird, right? So it, the eyes of the other can make us uh, realize how strange we are. <laughs> you know, the belief we think are completely normal or strange. So this is the kind of the decentering dimension of atheism for Lent. But the key as well, atheism and theism are often thought of as opposites and as enemies. And definitely on YouTube and all of that at the moment, you'll always have a theist and an atheist debating. <laughs> you know, you see things as enemies. But actually the truth is, Atheism and theism have always had a very close relationship within theology and a very, a very fiery and also a very friendly relationship. Um, maybe just very briefly, I'll say a couple of things about that and then you guys can come back to me. So first of all, theism, think of theism as a, as a, uh, a positive claim. Whenever a, th a, th a theist is someone... Um, so there's basically, let's start with what's called regional theisms, right? There's mm. no one theism, there's regional theisms, there's, there are hundreds of them, all of these different beliefs in God. Now, we can, we can corral them into groups. So we can talk about polytheisms, where there's many gods. We can talk about henotheisms, where there's many gods, but one god rules over the rest. We can talk about monotheisms. And we can also, the more complex one is we can talk about um, a type of, uh, uh, what would you call it, uh, manifold monism or Trinitarian monism or whatever, right? So you have, you have these different groupings of theisms. And actually within the biblical text, you see at the very beginning, you have like a polytheism, then it gets, moves into henotheism. And lots of gods, but one God rules over them all into a type of monotheism and then into a type of uh, uh, manifold monism. So you've got all these different theisms, all of these different beliefs. Uh, and then atheisms are the rejections of those beliefs. So atheisms are always the rejection of a theism. 
uh, if there's ever an atheism, it's, it's a rejection of a particular theism. And so in this way, whenever you make a claim about God or the absolute or ultimate reality, as soon as you make that positive claim, it can be critiqued. It can be denied. Um, uh, contradictions and deadlocks within it can be brought out. And that's kind of atheism. Uh, and so you can't have one without the other. It's just like you can't have up without down or left without right. Uh, atheism and theism are interlinked. The second thing I want to say very quickly is atheism arises out of theism. You'll find that some of the, the most important atheists uh, all arise out of the traditions that they critique. Uh, one of the most obvious, although he's not very well known, is Jean Meslier, uh, who was probably the first to ever write a systematic uh, book on atheism. Uh, in the um, it was in the 1600s, in the 1700s. Uh, he and he was a parish priest all his life. What a great parish priest who gave his money to the poor, who stood up for the oppressed. And they found after he died that he'd written this book called My Testament, which was this savage attack on uh, on all things religious. <laughs> but it was because he grew up within it and he intimately knew the contradictions and the difficulties and the deadlocks. And so atheism arises out of theism. And then another element, I'll just say one more thing, is then it's also then the driving force of theism. Because when it critiques, what that generates is people making more sophisticated mm. arguments and, and honing their arguments and thinking differently. And so then what you find is that theology is this process of affirmation and negation, affirmation and negation. And... Um, uh, you know, you can even see the original mystics were atheists in the sense that they said that every time we say what God is, we're making an idol. So we have to disbelieve that God. So they were always saying that every theism has to be accompanied by an atheism. And I'll give you one more example of that, which is another conservative, a very conservative Catholic philosopher called Jean-Luc Marion, uh, who wrote a book called God Without Being. And he talked about how theology is is principally um, a, a discipline of denomination. And I love the way churches are called denominations, right? To denominate means to dename. Yeah. So he says, like, you nominate as in you name God, and then you denominate, you dename God. And this process is actually at the heart of a healthy and dynamic theological life. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. That's awesome. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so. One of the things that it sounds uh, that I've kind of heard some similarities is you had something called the Evangelism Project, and it sounds oh, like yes. these things are really similar. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah. So the the Evangelism Project is another of the decentering practices. So there's atheism for Lent. We mentioned the Last Supper, and then the Evangelism Project is where a group of people go to be evangelized by another group. So every fortnight we would visit some community or some group it might be the Scientologist one week, it might be a humanist society the next week, a Jewish community the next week, a fundamentalist group the next week, whatever it is, you know, we would visit these groups and we would talk with them, uh, we would chat, we'd find out more about what they believed um, and then we would ask, what do we look like to you? 
And this is where the evangelism takes place. So whenever people hear the term the evangelism project, so first thing they think is you're going out to evangelize, right? To make, to bring other people into your fold. And then when they hear this idea, they're going, oh, so you're just reversing it. You're kind of asking them to convert you. Go like, well, not really. Because what we're asking is when you see yourself through the eyes of the other, you start to see all of your own contradictions, your impurities, your pollutions. And then you start, you're, you basically are invited to be converted more deeply into your faith, right? So the other becomes an instrument of your further conversion. It's almost like if you can imagine a factory that makes iPhones, and let's imagine this, this, this factory, it's making iPhones, but it's causing pollution. And the pollution is raining down 100 miles away, right? And destroying crops. Now, the people who own those crops then go to the factory owners and say, listen, you're causing pollution, right? Now, one of two things will happen, right? If the factory owners are nice people, they might go, oh my goodness, we just didn't know. Like, we, we didn't know that was happening. Can't believe it. We're going to make changes, right? Or if they're, they're nasty, they'll just say, we don't care, right? But, they, but, but when the people who own the crops come to the people in the factory and show them what's happening, you realize, oh, that was invisible to us. We didn't realize that pollution was there. And then it allows you the opportunity to make a change. And so whenever you say to the Islamic society, what do Christians look like to you in this community? You can see something about yourself you might not otherwise see. And again, it's a decentering practice because it's kind of like a challenging you. Um, and, and once more, this is a very conservative notion that the other can instrument of our further conversion and our further transformation. As the French existentialist uh, Gabriel Marcel said, said, there's so many parts of me that need the good news. There's so many parts of me that lie in darkness that need the light. Hmm. There's so my, so my personal I guess journey through faith and deconstruction has kind of felt similar to feeling decentralized and particularly with studying like philosophical theology in my later years in education. So I find that really, I find that really valuable for my, for my own religious life. Um, when I look at the world and since I've kind of removed myself from church environments in the last couple of years as a break, one thing that I've noticed is that it seems like that process kind of plays out with other, like just really kind of like ide other ideologies in general. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think obviously politically is is one of the big is one of the big things mm. that we see this in at play now. Um, have you? Yeah. What um, I guess I'm kind of curious about, like what other practices you've seen outside of, or like what other practices you've seen applying that decentralizing towards other um towards other disciplines like political philosophy and um really yeah. like sociology yeah i mean and, and i do worry that and unfortunately if we can speak kind of frankly um a lot of people who have left the uh kind of conservative christian world and the evangelical world and have kind of like uh deconstructed that dimension of their lives have often gone on to replace that with just new certainties hmm. and um new tribal identities mm -hmm. and what's one psychoanalysis because psychoanalysis is one of the areas that i work within the theory of it uh it's called the big other new big others new 
uh, kind of uh, new shibboleths. Um, and uh, I, I think of this in terms of new purity cultures. Uh, there's always purity culture is, a, is all about who is clean and who is dirty, who is, who is pure and who is impure. And often the sad thing is we can move from one purity culture to another and we don't even notice it. We don't even know that we're doing it, but we're creating new uh, rules um, in terms of like who the pure good are in terms of and who the and who the dirty and the impure are and it's the and basically the religion's interesting in this way because religions and you look at hinduism buddhism christianity judaism islam they, they all in different ways uh are working with this idea of purity and impurity mm. and what happens is these early religions develop uh rituals of purity that are often very useful very practical, very good for like, uh, especially um, before we knew about food hygiene and all of this, these, these were useful things. But then these purifying rituals become so rigid um, and, uh, that we, um, we enter into what's called the beautiful soul, where we, we all of our darkness we put out onto somebody else. We, we think of ourselves as pure and good and the other as well. And then the prophets... The religious prophets are the ones who come and basically stir it all up again and go, are you really as pure as you think you are? And are those people really as impure as you think you are? You know, And you can see, of course, uh, kind of Jesus as kind of like uh, coming out of the Jewish tradition doing exactly that, you know, with the story of the Good Samaritan, with this idea of the tax collectors and the Pharisees. Uh, there's a constant... Uh, questioning of uh, the, you know the casting the first stone. All of this is a question of purity culture and a trying to kind of show that things are a little bit more muddy than we would maybe like to admit. Uh, and so, yeah, I do worry that we are in a secular type of uh, purity culture, um, and we see purity cultures proliferate within the political arena at the moment. Hmm. Yeah, the challenge that I've seen in in that dynamic. Is that um, you know, and you you talked on this a little bit during the the podcast with the liturgists about scapegoating. Where when when we go through an experience where we've been harmed, um, the normal process through that experience is, uh, you know, those people hurt me. Those people are bad. The problem is, is that when we make that type of jump, which is a normal and natural response to being harmed, um, is that it's really enticing to stay there. And I think it's really interesting that you talk about the exchange that we don't know that we've really just exchanged one purity culture for another purity culture and we didn't see it. Um, and then, you know, that's not a sustainable change. That's not um, we find that that leads to another bout of disillusionment or another bout of like disappointment. Yet another thing has failed me. Um, so what uh, what. Do you feel that doing a regular decentering practice helps combat that that type of mentality of that over there is going to fix me or that over there has the correct answer? A hundred percent. I mean, the whole strategy that of for devising the decentering practices is trying to combat this scapegoating mechanism and this kind of new purified uh, cultures. Because each of the decentering practices, uh, the other one's called the Omega Course, but each of them is in a way encountering the other, the one who we think is bad, right? So for many people who are, say, within 
maybe in evangelical church at first they're thinking atheism is the bad place and encountering it and then and then finding that actually an engagement with that is potentially productive and transformative. Uh, same with the Last Supper. It's about bringing people to the table who you might otherwise other and then them being in of your further conversion. And um, uh, what was the, oh, the evangelism project? Exactly the same thing. So, because here's the thing. I mean, if we want to kind of go a bit deeper again here is there's a potential, there's a reading of Christianity that Christianity is not about belief. It's not about belief in God. It's not about belief in angels. It's not about anything like that, right? That's all, that's all neither here nor there. You know, people like Bonhoeffer near the end saw this as well, right? And Kierkegaard saw this, where he says, it's about a, a, a mood of being in the world. It's about not having the right beliefs. And Kierkegaard, like he makes jokes about it as if like, oh, you think heaven's a, a, a multiple choice exam and, you know, as long as you got the right answers, you got the right beliefs you get in. It's about a different form of being in the world. It's a different form of desire and of being and existence. And someone like René Girard, uh, René Girard is, so he was, a, as you probably likely know, but for your listeners, uh, an anthropologist and um, a theorist uh, who actually did great work in a variety of fields, anthropology, um, sociology, philosophy, literature. Um, and he had this incredible reading of Christianity that basically, at its core, it's about breaking the scapegoat mechanism. It's about realizing that uh, that th these purity and impurity things that we create are always more complex than we would like to imagine. That what we try to do is we try to find scapegoats to blame for all the evil in the world. We try to, and we start this when we're kids and we say there's a monster under the bed. Mm. There's no monster under the bed. The monster's within us, right? But we, we can't internalize it, so we put it out into the world. And that this process is actually... Uh, what leads to the vast majority of human suffering and human evil. And so breaking the scale, even, even think about the crucifixion as an example, is Christ was the one that we had to kill to get back to God. But then we realized that the one we were trying to kill to get to God was God. The obstacle that was in the way to the truth was the truth. Right. Uh, this is a yeah. This is repeated constantly in the Bible. But you've got the conversion of Paul. Whenever he thinks that the Christians are the problem that he needs to kill, get rid of, in order to get back to pure religion, and then he realizes that the very people he's trying to kill are the sight of God. Right. Mm. So again, this this process of the very thing that we think is the problem is the is not the problem. Um, so. If if René Girard and, and Hegel, who's you know one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived, and has a reading of Christianity that's not dissimilar to this, but if 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 we take Girard seriously, going like, well, Christianity is is primarily designed to help us take responsibility for our lives, to um, not run from our darkness, but to basically there's that beautiful line that says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free right and it's something that none of us believe we all think that if we hide our truth we all constantly mm. try to hide the truth of who we are and what we are the truth of our desires like all of these truths are constantly being hidden but the psychoanalytic idea is that if you can know 
truth, if you can bring that truth to the surface, that 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 confronting of the truth is itself transformative. I just think of AA as an example of that. When the person of AA confronts their truth, they say, I am an alcoholic. And that very act of affirming the truth is what leads to them finding change within the 12 steps. Mm. Hmm. I think one of the things that I like that you touched on uh, about regional theism um, is one of the things I was listening to uh, the pastor of Vinings Lake Church, uh, Cody, can't think of his last name, but um, he was talking about the fact that what we don't realize is that we are all practicing regional theism. We're all yeah. practicing this idea of, you know, placing, a, we, we all have a lens that we read everything and experience everything through. And as we do that, that lens shapes specifically how we see God. And it's regional based on where we are, what city we live in, what country we live in, um, what demographics we belong to, what socioeconomic class we belong to. Um, and so something that's really exciting about this is about finding a, a gentle way to confront this is my bias, this is my regional theism, this is how um, I am actually viewing God that's different than how other people are, or maybe even different than how I should be, or different than how the text I'm, uh, you know, projecting onto says I should be, uh, or anything like that. Yeah, and this is, and this, the, and the good news on this, because the bad news of that, people can listen and go, oh my goodness, so are we all just kind of caught up in, you know, like some sort of extreme relativism or something like that? But from the the position of Hegel, this is the the, the point is all. Basically, all human uh, progress happens where you start where you're at. You start with whatever beliefs you have, whatever books that you've read, whatever world that you've been brought up in, right? You start with a language. You start with a way of seeing the world. And Hegel says, you don't really, if you move from one worldview to another, right, which is what people think of as conversion, we'll call this kind of a, a conversion one, where you, you move from one worldview to another worldview, Hegel might say, well, nothing really changes. Often everything you believe changes, but the way you hold it stays the same, right? Mm. It's just like, so uh, maybe you change your fashion, you're still obsessed with fa fa fashion, you just are wearing different clothes, right? Um, but Hegel says, no, start with where you're at, and then you go as deeply into it as you can. And when you go deeply into, say, what you're, we're talking about, the regional theisms or beliefs, right? We go deeply into them. We'll start to find lots of conflicts and difficulties and deadlocks. And this is where the negation comes in. This is where atheism comes in. And then we start to doubt things and we start to question things. And then Hegel says, and then he calls it the negation of negation, which is where then you start to construct more complex and interesting and rich notions. And then they, you kind of like follow them and you get into the contradictions of those. And very gradually, you actually start to gain a deeper, richer uh, view of the world. And then Hegel's main trick is he says, and then we discover that the truth is not at the end of this journey, but the truth is this dialectical journey itself, right? The, the truth is the unfolding of this dialectic process. And in, in being part of that process, uh, we 
<laughs> this might sound very metaphysical, but we can actually t we can I can give it some scientific basis uh, by by engaging in this critical reevaluation where we look for the contradictions in our beliefs and we deepen them. We're actually um, we're sharing something that is part of the very nature of reality itself. Because reality itself has contradiction within it. You see that obviously within biology, uh, you know, evolution, or you see it within mathematics uh, with the girdles uh, incompleteness theorem. You see it within quantum mechanics, within physics, with uh, Niels Bohr and superpositioning. All of these are saying that there is this kind of like tension and deadlock within reality. And as we as we explored and go deeper into it, we get new insights and uh, we get a richer view of the universe. Um, so uh, even in psychoanalysis, the idea is that we as human beings have conflictual desires. We have conflictual things within us. You know, no one can say what they believe. We don't, this is the funny thing. I hear people say, uh, I believe such and such, you know, and they ask me, what do you believe? And I'm like, but, you know, we don't know what we believe. That's the weird thing, right? That's the, I always find it weird when people say that. And then when you find out what you believe, it's the last thing you'd want to admit to anybody. Yeah, you know, because yeah. there's other things. Some people think they know what they believe. Yeah. They think that they believe what they believe. <laughs> yeah. And then they think that they that they would like to share what they believe. Yeah. But each of those is really weird, right? One is, I, you meet people all the time who, yeah. who are so happy, think they're out partying and they're, they're the life and soul. But no, they hate themselves and they don't know it. And you you don't have to believe what you believe. There's people who at night, if they hear a, a, a tapping at the window, think there's a ghost and, and then hide under their duvet cover as if it's going to protect them. Now, that's a belief. They believe their duvet cover is, is like Harry Potter world. It's going to make them invisible <laughs> or it's a shield that will stop a knife, right? That's yeah. a weird belief. You don't believe the belief, but you do believe it. And then thirdly, you know, you don't want to share some of your beliefs whenever you find mm. out the weird that go on in your mind. Mm. Uh, so it's a, so for me, a lot of Christianity is not about affirming beliefs, but actually about coming to know your beliefs. A lot of what Jesus did was help people be in it, which is what grace is actually, is create a gracious experience where we can encounter our beliefs, encounter our what's going on within us. So again, it's weird for me that people think of Christianity as a, a set of beliefs, Whenever you see the practice of Jesus, was he was never really telling people what to believe, but rather helping people uh, know themselves and, and know their beliefs, and and that is in and of itself is a transformative event. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. Um, what, so one of the things that I'm uh, that I'm curious about is uh, what, what would what would you say to somebody who is. <clears throat> kind of at the beginning of their, well, actually, they might even be further along in the, the decentralizing journey if they're beginning to realize that they don't, that they don't hold these beliefs and then they're, and then they're getting scared. Um, yep. What would you, what would you say to someone in that, in that environment? Because I, I think some of the responses that we've gotten have been, I'm, I'm a little worried simply for my social standing. Because um, yeah. that's, that's a big, because really like and even just listening to stories like that it seems like belief is not so much about what we actually believe but actually how we belong yes um, yes so what what would you There's say yes yeah, so what what would you say to someone kind of like going through that yeah and and here's the here's the interesting thing is um 
So the one decentering practice I didn't mention yet was the Omega course. And just in brief, there's a thing called the Alpha course in the UK, and it's a kind of a 12-week course to introduce people to Christianity. So playfully, I started the Omega course, which is a 12-week course to get you out of Christianity. <laughs> and, uh, 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 kind of, uh, but it's more about you know getting out of toxic religion. And it, it actually... The Alpha Course, so the Alpha Course will have like a week on who is Jesus, a week on what is the Bible, etc. But instead of in the Alpha Course, you kind of discuss it, but at the end, you're given kind of the answer, in inverted commas. But in the Omega Course, what we would do is we would actually uh, show three different interpretations within the Christian tradition on something like the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, a, conser- a, a good conservative position, a good liberal position, and a good radical position. And so not like, we, there are no straw, no straw men or anything like that. You know, mm-hmm. you have a good conservative position like N.T. Wright or something like that. Um, you'd find it, you know, I always find the liberal ones hard to find, but you find a good liberal one and then you find, and then the, the right one, the radical, right? <laughs> so, um, we, would, we would do those and then we would just talk about, you know, where we were at. And I remember one there was a, just a discussion about the crucifixion and it was an open chat and one person in the room said, uh, you know, I don't know if I believe in a literal resurrection. Uh, I have, I believed it all my life, but I don't know if I believe it now. I think uh, maybe it's, it's, it's meaning something else. And then somebody else said, oh, well, no, I think it was literal. And they said, I think something actually happened that evoked this, this kind of uh, reaction. And then someone else said, I'll be honest with you, I've never thought about it. I mean, I say I believe it, but I've literally just never thought, what do I think about it? But at the end, I talked to the person who said she didn't she didn't believe it was literal because she seemed a little bit stressed. And I said, what's up? And she went, listen, I'm an elder in my church and um, I'm on the worship team. And I've been part of that church for 45 years. And I've just had a bite of cancer. And while I was in hospital, I just started rethinking everything. And she said, I believed in a literal resurrection all my life. I'm just questioning at the moment. But she says, I'm worried because if I said that in my church, I'd probably be kicked off the eldership team. No, they'd still let me go to the church, but I couldn't be an elder or I wouldn't be able to do the worship team. But then I said to her, I said, well, listen, do you think that the other elders haven't had similar thoughts? And she was like, well, I'm sure they have. And so I said, okay, so the issue is not that you've got your doubts. The issue is sharing them, right? And she went, okay. Go like, yeah, because of course these other people have had these questions and probably lots of questions, right? It's just there's no freedom to share them because if you share them, you get in trouble. So what I would want to say to what I want to say to the listener is a few things, if if you'll allow me to indulge, is first of all, you'd be surprised how many people around you have similar questions, similar doubts, similar are going through a similar process. And actually what makes you dangerous to them is not that you don't believe, it's that you're exposing their lack of belief. Yes. Right? Because remember, we, yeah, because we just talked about how we don't know what we believe, right? Well, it's, it's called repression. It's a simple word for it, right? So there's a lot of people who repress their doubt. And you always can tell someone who's repressed their doubt because they've got a massive collection of George McDowell books, right? <laughs> they, uh, they, they have a library of apologetics because like, it's like, you know, what's called reaction formation, which is when somebody does the opposite of what they are. If you're full of doubt, then you, you, you have certainty. I, I was once on a radio show 
apologetics guy, and he was saying, are you telling me that I should doubt? And he was an interesting guy. He had, a, he had a show on four days a week about apologetics. He'd written like 10 books on apologetics. And I was like, no, I'm not telling you that you should doubt. I'm not, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying you're full of doubt. You just don't know it. <laughs> Why is it you have a radio show three times a week about apologetics? Must be riddled with doubt. So um, there's a lot of people who have that doubt, but they have not they've not had the space to be able to be honest, just like they haven't had that AA space where you can sit around and say, my name's Pete and I have doubts, right? That space of grace. And so you, it is dangerous. If you just go and say those things, you might find yourself uh, uh, ostracized, but that's not evidence that people don't agree with you. That's actually evidence that they do, but they're not able to express that agreement. Just like there's, whenever Rob Bell came out with a book called Love Wins, um, a lot of the evangelicals didn't like it at all and were very angry about it. And then and I remember talking to people about it and said, it's because they disagree with it. I'm like, well, of course it's not. Because what do the Amish think, right? They, they don't agree with it. They don't care. They're just building barns. They don't care, right? <laughs> Why would you get angry? Why would you get angry? Why would you not just disagree? Disagreement is disagreement. But when you get really angry and you, you start to shout, that doesn't signal disagreement. That signals repressed agreement. That there's something in the book that is touching a part of you that that is hidden. So then, the question is how do you how do you bring that out in a way that doesn't ostracise yourself and that helps the other people around you? Mm-hmm. And there are ways of doing that. And a lot of it is about choosing those right moments. I mean, here's can I one example? If someone breaks up with a person. They often think that the person who they broke up with is all bad and they're all good, right? And they hate the other person and they're happy and they talk to their friends about it and they say, that person was terrible and awful. They did so many bad things. And if you're a good friend, you know, you don't encourage that too much, but you don't discourage it because, you know, we'll betide you if you do, you're be in trouble. You listen. But there'll be a certain point, and it might be three weeks or a month later, when the person has a little bit of hesitation in their voice. And at that point, you might be able to say, listen, I think you're just hurt. You know, I, I think that you're just, this really damaged you. And, and, you know, I'd love you to talk about that. And if it's the right moment, then they begin to talk it all through. And then the splitting mechanisms, so they're, basically what they're doing is they're splitting. They're creating a goodie and a body, that, that which is a defense against suffering. As, you, as they are able to express their suffering, the splitting mechanism diminishes they begin to have a more complex understanding of the relationship. And eventually they might even be able to have a, have maybe not a friendship with the person, but they might be able to see them in the street, go up to them, shake their hand and say, you know, you know, I'm sorry it didn't work out. And I think about you sometimes and, and I really do wish the best for you. But that, you have to wait for that moment where there's the hesitation. So one is look for those moments where you think you can share in a way that will allow them to share or, or even ask a question that will allow them to share. And then the other thing I'd like to say to your question, it's a very good question, because this is the danger, is the big thing to watch out for, I've seen it so many times, is when you start to question this belief system you've got and you start to see some holes and you start to, you start to what Tillich calls, he says, you start to enter what's a broken myth. You have an unbroken myth and it enters a broken myth your temptation will be to go and find another unbroken one Mm -hmm. you'll your temptation will be to find another set of certainty some people go to it's hilarious some people embrace 
kind of so because atheism is just a type of productive negation that kind of is dialectic. But some people embrace atheism as this positive force, and it becomes religious, right? You met these religious or political your political position, and it becomes this this uh, un, unmovable fortress. So it's like, how do you? very gradually come to terms with doubt, complexity, and ambiguity in reality and not fall foul of a new a new mm. utopia, mm. a new promise of salvation, whether it's whether it's money, fame, sex, drugs. I mean I've seen it. Psychedelic enlightenment's one of the people go after evangelicalism, uh, you know, sexual revolution, polyamory, uh, 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 money, fame and New Age, all of these, none of these are wrong in and of themselves. They're wrong, right around they're just things, but they're, they're wrong if they become the new guru, the new salvation thing that's going to offer you the answer. But Paul Tillich says, what you need to do is find a way to embrace the doubt, complexity, and ambiguity. And here's the funny thing about Christianity, which is, it's, it's in, in Christianity, um, it's not that you have doubt about your Christianity. Christianity embraces doubt. There is this, uh, it's a, so it's not that you doubt your faith. Faith is doubt. Mm-hmm. Faith involves doubt. And uh, that's the next move. So the first move is you start to doubt your faith. But then the second move is you find a faith that is embracive of doubt itself. It's a kind of an expression of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I that's. I find that uh, it's one of the things that you kind of are touching on is um, is this discussion of of symptoms versus uh, problems, and I find that a lot of times what we get hung up on are symptomatic of much deeper problems. And yes. so as we as we encounter these symptoms, we say, okay, well, we want to jump from from evangelical ideology to uh, humanism, because that's the solution. Uh, yeah. But then you run into other challenges with humanism of like, uh, you know, nihilism or, you know, uh, radical atheism or, or, you know, the worship of science or whatever you want to call it. And then all of a sudden you have, well, this isn't quite hitting on everything. Um, and realizing that you've been simply running between symptoms rather than like you were talking about earlier, going deeper and deeper and deeper until you find what the actual root problem is. Uh, yes. And and I think that's one of the big challenges um, for just human existence in general. But really being able to go decipher, is this actually a symptom or is this a problem uh, in and of itself? Or is this just, again, pointing me towards a much deeper, much larger problem? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, just to yeah, clarify for your listeners then about that that very important distinction between problem and symptom. I mean, in a nutshell, a problem is something that is external to you that you can solve. A symptom is something that speaks a truth. So it's, it's like, um, yeah, think of homelessness. If homelessness is treated as a problem, it's like, oh, homelessness is like cancer. We can cut it out of society. We can give enough blankets. We can create enough homeless shelters. We can kind of sort it out. Um, if homelessness is seen as a symptom, it's like, oh, homelessness is 
not the problem, it's the solution to a problem. There's a problem in our society and the solution is the homeless population. And until we work out what the issue is within our society, we'll always be generating homelessness because homelessness is the expression of the truth of a disavowed and unknown thing. Again, that's where society doesn't know what it believes. Its belief is manifested in the symptom, which is in the homelessness or in the prison population. So yeah, so there is this whenever we engage with things as problems we're uh we're we're always distancing ourselves from them whereas a symptom is where we're seeing ourselves as part of the the issue um i don't know if that clarifies what a problem or symptom is to the listener but uh, it's an interesting discussion to have perhaps yeah um i like your definition more than mine (laughs) So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost like you've studied this at length and written books about it. <laughs> uh, who would have thought? <laughs> no, but I love that distinction. And I think that it's about um, being able to find yourself. And I, I think part of that is what really, what even through all the deconstruction, all of the, uh, the falling out of my faith, one of the things that still attracts me to Christianity is that the built-in nature of otherness of looking at somebody else and seeing um seeing yourself in them seeing christ in the least of these um looking at uh you know even just the language the horticultural language of um of the bible you know one of my one of the running jokes with us on the podcast is that i am a huge fan of like horticultural metaphors um and one of what uh, when you look at like uh, the fruit of the spirit, that language is so so powerful, and we just skip over it because what I would do growing up in the church is I was so worried about the outward appearance of what I was doing, how I was doing things that it was like uh, nailing apples to the tree, and from a distance it looked like an apple tree, uh, but all I was really doing was actually destroying the tree itself. Uh, versus when you look at your own mental health, your own personal health. And for me, um, mental health has been a lifelong struggle. I stopped worrying about the fruit and just started focusing on the roots and going deeper and deeper and deeper internally, following the conflict uh, as far down as it could go. And as I've continued to do that, what I've noticed is that the fruit is becoming a byproduct of like healthier habits, um, uh, going away from negative coping mechanisms uh, and stuff like that. And I, I think that being able to step back, being able to find yourself in other people, being able to find others in general, I think is just such a powerful act, um, as you're describing as a decentering practice, which really helps be the gateway to that own internal healing. Yes. And what you're talking about, yeah, said very beautifully is, you know, there's, there's, this has the one, I guess the biggest insight you could say of Christianity, perhaps, and I don't think the confessional church has got this at all, um, is that, is the notion of Christ experiencing the, uh, God experiencing the loss of God. The, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is so Hegel builds this as a very central part to his work. Because the idea is that we always think of God as complete. We have struggles, we have conflicts, you know, and we can go into those, but God is complete. And whenever we're feeling like we have contradictions and deadlocks and difficulties and impurities in our lives, um, we just feel distant from the absolute. And then in Christianity, you've got this incredible symbol of 
the absolute experiences this lack, this conflict within itself. And Hegel sees this as salvation, basically, is the moment when is that you are closest to the absolute when you embrace your own lack, because that lack is reflected into the absolute itself. And this is the this is the meaning of, of the cure in psychoanalysis is that you go into psychoanalysis wanting to be fixed, wanting to get rid of some lack, <laughs> wanting to do all of that. And yet they push you into it. They actually get you to look at the contradictions. And actually what happens is instead of finding a kind of cure, you just start to go deeper and deeper into the conflicts that are in you until you can accept those conflicts. You get to the deepest level of them and then you're able to make peace with them. And at that moment, um, you basically... Uh, you can you can be freed. You can kind of experience this depth of life, this new life, uh, and this this is reflected somewhat, I think, in the Christian notion of, um, you know, we want to be like God. Well, then we need to embrace this lack, this 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 conflictual character, and that is called salvation, where you carry your cross, because mm. that is where you kind of like uh, you share you share that. Uh, conflict with God on the cross. Mm. Yeah. So um, there's just a lot of just a, a lot of questions <laughs> yeah. that I'm you know, be, super I, curious I keep about. Keep you all but, night, man. <laughs> but we, we do, uh, yeah, yeah, we do want to be respectful of your time. Um, so I'm not sure how much time you'd had set aside. But um, one of the things that um, that we really want to get out for. Um, for this, and we've already touched on it a little bit, is where are we going this year um, with atheism for Lent? Like, what's the mm-hmm. what's kind of like a yeah? What's the syllabus for it for those who might be interested but have not yet been to the website? Yeah, so basically, what I want to do is kind of like help uh, give an experience of this journey that we're talking about in all of its difficulty and joy. So, so for example, we, we basically start with the basic critiques about God. And uh, then from that, we, uh, we look at the mystics and we look at the mystical critiques. And, uh, and then from that, we look at the people who critique the mystics, who look, who, because who were so caught up in a God of the beyond and critiqued religion because they said we need to be there for the people. We need to give, you know, real water people, not baptismal water, etc. And then the theological response to that of people who said, yes, and in this we find something of the very nature of God. And then the people who then critique that. So what, what, we're, what you're basically experiencing is this dance of theism and atheism. But each move goes, you go deeper. Each move you get to a more interesting place. And each move kind of like shows you that oh these two things are dancing together until in the last week the hardest week really but the last week they they kind of unify in this very interesting way so atheism for land is a journey um i i think i called it this year the the god beyond god but it's this notion of we talked about it earlier nomination and denomination this naming and denaming and how that process actually can purify us, can get rid of idolatry, can... Because here's the thing, Nietzsche, for example, his major critique of religion was when it's used as a way to make resentment sacred, right? He, he basically says, so he called it resentimum. He said, resentimum is a spiritual condition in which you look at everything through the, the lens 
resentment. Like we all feel resentment occasionally, maybe, you know, but resentment is where you can't look at anything without bitterness and hatred and this desire to punish the other and this all this all of this. And like so you the, go, my goodness. Is that like the, like naysaying? Yeah, nay saying and and yeah, it kind of it's this. It's and he he has a beautiful way. Like it's he said like it makes everything dead. Whenever actually Nietzsche said, "What doesn't kill you makes you stronger," right? It's a very famous quote of his. But uh, out of context, it sounds obviously false, right? You, know, you have a heart attack; it doesn't kill you. It doesn't make you stronger, you know. But but in context, it makes sense. He says there are people who um, are so full of resentment that they, they everything dies, that everything is bitter, that everything is depressing. And there are some people who are so healthy that whatever doesn't kill them makes them stronger, right? Because they have this, this, this yes saying to life. They have this affirmation of life. So even when bad things happen to them, if it doesn't kill them, uh, they can come out of it somehow still affirming life in 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 richness so whenever you kind of read that you're like oh yeah well absolutely like whenever you see religion being used to batter people you see it all the time you see it on the right and the left everyone's claiming that jesus is on their side right and and the other person's got a stupid notion of jesus and and it's so funny how especially with the liberal conservative thing you see it where each side thinks it's so obviously that they've got the right jesus and the other you know mm-hmm. doesn't um and uh, uh, but but it, but you know, but then Jesus is used as a weapon just to beat people down, just to just to say you're an idiot, you're terrible, you're awful, you're you're wrong. Um, I, I love Karl Barth in this. Karl Barth goes the opposite direction of liberals who who might want to say, well, we're all right. But Barth says, under God, we're all wrong. <laughs> he calls it the divine no, the dialectic no. Um, and I, I do I do like that kind of approach. Um, uh, like I was at a debate once and it was about ecumenism and this guy was saying, well, you know, my religion's right for me, your religion's right for you. And I'm like, well, it might be better to say, no, your religion's right for you and my religion's wrong for me. So my job is to find out all the wrong bits of mine and work through that and try to make it better and your step. But, but it's not that we can all sit back and go, oh, we've all got it. Like in a, in a way, maybe, um, uh, it's it's kind of better to kind of have that kind of like a, a bit of humility, mm-hmm. you know. But, yeah. mm. but I realized we've opened up so many um, conversation topics. I feel like uh, <laughs> yeah. we've opened up like big areas that we could spend uh, yeah. weeks talking about. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Definitely want to put the bug in there. I, I'm very curious about. Um, like radical uh, and, and exactly what that means. Um, but th- well, that will have to be, that'll have to be tabled because. Yeah. We're going to have to do this again. If that's yeah. all right with you. This oh yeah. Well, I've had a great time. I really, yeah. I haven't been doing many. I kind of haven't been doing many podcasts recently, but uh, something about whenever you emailed me, um, I just really liked what you were doing and I uh, wanted nice. to support it and I really appreciated that you want to do atheism for Lent. And so yeah. I was like, Oh yeah, I'll do this. And I've had a blast talking to you. And yeah, nice. definitely love to do a, do a part two at some point. One of the things that I want to do is for anybody who's concerned or uh, wants to do atheism for Lent, but like me, has reservations, uh, I definitely recommend uh, The Orthodox Heretic, which you wrote, and it is phenomenal. Um, oh, thank you. It, yeah, it's amazing. And I like, because what I love about 
the work that you describe about that dialogue, that um, relationship between things, um, and getting into the discomfort and the tension, you do a great job with three, th- well, 33 really amazingly written short stories. And uh, so I, I think The Orthodox Heretic has been phenomenal to look through and getting ready. Uh, but I encourage anybody to definitely buy it and then buy another copy for the friend you will inevitably want to give it to when you're done. Oh, well, thank you for that uh, promotion. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what are you? Uh, what, what are you working on now that you want to plug? And also, where could we? Um, yeah, where, where can all of us interact with what you do online? Yeah, so there's lots of free stuff out there. Uh, I've got a website, it's just my name, and um, there's lots of material there. There's material on YouTube. I have a, a, a podcast called The Fundamentalist as well. Which is um, very good. And, <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I do that with my friend, he's a comedian, Elliot Morgan. Um, and uh, most of what I'm concentrating on, but is doing a lot of courses, a lot of seminars, a lot of talks that I do with Patreon. Um, so that's more in depth. There's lots of stuff out there but the more in-depth stuff i'm concentrating on are uh various courses uh that i run and um you know i i haven't written a book for a while so uh there's a couple of book ideas in the back of my mind but um uh most of my most of my energy has really been doing um teaching online teaching mm-hmm. that's awesome yeah cool. so cool well, thank you so awesome. much well, for thank joining you. us yeah Appreciate it. Listen, thanks very much. I look forward to doing this again. And, uh, you know, I hope you enjoy the Atheism for Lent journey. Yeah, yeah thank I you so much. Will. This is going to be great. Have an awesome night. It was a pleasure talking with you, Pete. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, Pete. Bye. Bye. Well, thanks again, everyone, for listening. I love this episode, and I hope you did too. I know Peter was excited to come back, so I don't think this will be the last time we get to hear from him. And a huge thank you to him for sharing his time and his work with us. You can find Peter and his work over at his website, peterrollins.com. And if you want to participate in Atheism for Lent, then you can sign up there as well. Over the course of Atheism for Lent, we will be posting to the blog on our website, lonelymountainmystics.com, about our experience. So you can check for updates and lend your own voice to the conversation there as well. Finally, I never want to miss an opportunity to thank the patrons who continue to make the show possible. We really feel the love, and I hope you feel it back. Thanks, everyone. Um, we so we didn't we <laughs> we talked about it before we started recording that we didn't actually get it after we pressed the record button. Um, so we'll stitch this back together. <laughs> but. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> So we're here with Peter Rollins. I did see. I did see. I was. I was talking. I was talking, and I was seeing your faces, looking very concerned. But I just kept talking. Perfect. So, uh, so uh, <laughs> I went completely blank. That's all right. The good news about this is that uh, Ben, who does the editing, loves to include these embarrassing clips and yeah. the. Uh, yeah, I was going to say this is definitely going to be enough. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything was going smooth a second ago, and then we hit record, and it's bad now. We can edit Listen, that you messed up in the first three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, you know, you're welcome. <laughs>